I'm leaning on the lamp Maybe you think I look a tramp Or maybe you think I'm round to steal your car <laughs> But no, I'm not a crook And if you think that's what I look I'll tell you why and what my motives are Hello and welcome to episode 1920 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined as always by Meg Rowley of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. Hello. And we are three today because we are also joined, coming to us from the top of a greased light pole in Philadelphia, it is Fangraphs writer Michael Bauman, who climbed all the way up there regardless of the greasiness. Hello, Michael. I'm in the corner watching you kiss her. Oh, come on. I can't hear you. I'm right over here. Why can't you see me? Oh. <laughs> Thank you. That was great. That lived up to my expectations for your energy level for this episode. Because, I don't know if you remember uh, this, but you had me do an Astros season preview episode of this the day after the Eagles won the Super Bowl in 2018. <laughs> you can tell that I wasn't co-hosting yet because I would have been like, Bauman might not be alive. You should wait a day to get a confirmed sighting. Uh, for some reason, I, I think I agreed to do this beforehand and i was just like i'm just gonna be hung over i think i said like i might not last very long but <laughs> uh, so i'm happy to continue this tradition of coming in here not operating on full strength well that's okay we want you in a, a compromised state or whatever state you're in after spending the weekend in philly you're still in philly you will cover the world series you were covering the nlcs you've written about them you were fangraphs man on the scene so you can bring us all the local color you are the local color, really. That's your, that's your purpose on this episode. You're supposed to set stuff on fire and flip some cars over. Did it get anything like that, or is that reserved for championships? It got so I didn't go downtown. I got while I was uh, putting the finishing touches on my uh, recap from the press box. My brother, who does live in Center City, texted me, and he knows that like I'm not wild about crowds. And I think he thought I took the train to the to the stadium instead of driving. But he was like, "If you need a place to like duck in and be safe for a while until this blows <laughs> over, <laughs> you can come over." But no, I I mean the the scenes of the stadium. I I mean I've been going to that stadium you know since I was a kid, and it like. I've never seen it that loud. I, there were there were times yesterday that I, I thought it was nervous. It wasn't as loud as it had been in the the first couple games of of that homestand, and then in the division series against Atlanta. And then I realized that I had been wearing big over ear headphones to keep my ears warm. Um, and that's the like I took them off, and it was like ah. So yeah, the cocky to distraught meter is is off the scale right now. <laughs> yeah, I asked Meg this when she got back from. T-Mobile where she covered the Mariners game but you were oh, like she was cruel yeah well <laughs> you had Bringing better that results up now. <laughs> I guess although you know her spirits were, were fairly high after that I thought all things considered not as high as yours but 
I asked her if it was at all difficult not to break the tradition of the ox box, not to cheer in the press box, even the outfield press box. So with you, maybe even less removed from Philly fandom than Meg at least was at some points this season from Mariners fandom, did you maintain decorum or did you disgrace Fangraphs forever? A hundred percent. No, which I, one? <laughs> well, I will. I will disgrace Fangraphs forever, but not for this reason. Okay. <laughs> no, I was explaining this to, to somebody because, like, I've been getting asked about this, and you know, my wife has been talking to people, like, saying how cool my job is, basically. <laughs> uh, and they've all asked, like, so he's a Phillies fan, but like, he goes to these games. Like, I've been doing this so long that if I'm there and I'm wearing a press credential, like. It just shuts off. It's a completely different work mode. Like All business bowman. Yeah. I mean, so like the first thing I got, basically the first thing I ever got credentialed to cover as a, as a sports journalist was South Carolina football for the student paper when I was in college. And like you learn how to take that hat on and off real quick. Well, at least I did. Not everybody does who, <laughs> who ends up doing that job. But so like- it was it was this odd situation where like one of my best friends, Paul Boyer, who hosts the the Phillies Therapy podcast with Matt Gelb from the Athletic, he was there as a fan in Game Four, and I think he's still completely unable to speak. Uh, two days later, and like we were talking about this, and I was like, I'm having a lot of the same emotions that you are, but like there's a lot of professional stress that, that comes with covering these games. Yeah, just completely divorced from from fandom. Like you know, I've felt the same level of anxiety covering like the the Brewers Dodgers. NLCS, for instance, a couple years ago. And so there's that on top of it. And there's also like, I can't cheer or drink all weekend. And so there's no right. outlet. And so like, it's all like a very stifled set of emotions that didn't really get let out. The one time I like- Until we emoted, invite you on the podcast and you <laughs> greet us Oh yeah, you're getting the fire hose. This is the first time I've spoken since <laughs> since I left the stadium. Yeah, it's okay if Paul loses his voice because who needs Phillies therapy right now? The Phillies are providing their own therapy, uh, I guess. I it's- love that you act as if it is now a, a fan base that is calm and not at all concerned. <laughs> I'm not acting like that. No, no Ben but, is. Oh, like, not no, not yeah. calm, but, but gleeful. Joyous sure. for sure. for the time being, yeah. at least until they play the Astros. <laughs> we'll see about that. But. Well, I was going to say the one time I did a moat in the press box, I laughed when Bryce Harper's home run went out. I think yeah. that was just out of disbelief more than anything else. Yeah, you're allowed to, you know, move your facial muscles. Or... <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of. Well, I mean, and there's been a lot of laughing and and groaning and and facial muscle movement in Philly's press boxes over the years. Mm-hmm. But the way I'm feeling right now is like Ben. Do you remember that episode of? Star Trek Deep Space Nine where where Chief O'Brien is going back and forth through time and they kill prime time timeline O'Brien and O'Brien from eight hours in the future takes over and they Uh never talk about it again. Uh Like, I think this happened to me in the eighth inning of of yesterday's game. Like, I feel like I'm in the wrong timeline. And because I've seen that play out so many times that like the rain comes and everybody's pissed off that they didn't put the tarp on. And and, like everybody's saying, oh, this is going to cost us the the season. Philly's Twitter was having a meltdown at the time. And it looked like it was for a minute there. And they got, you know, they got Stott on the in the bottom of the seventh and Rio Muto hit a single to to lead off the eighth. And I'm like, they had chances like this is not what what caused the game and like i'm so frustrated by just that refusal to acknowledge that like this didn't actually cost the phillies the game and i like i was writing 
a recap to that effect and then harper hit the ball uh, hit the ball at him like i've never seen this part of the movie before this is not how the movie ends <laughs> and so like i still sort of feel like i'm having an out of body experience so i i hope that was <sighs> Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you don't need to come down. Don't come down on our account. But but I, I guess more so than Meg, you have seen this movie before, right? I mean, you've seen good Phillies teams. You've seen a Phillies championship. Jesus, Ben. It's yeah. been a while, but it's, wow. not, it's not a completely new experience. Wow. Compared to to some fan bases who are probably saying, "Oh, poor Phillies, you haven't won." I don't one think in- of you as like an emotionally sensitive person, <laughs> but this is. I know you've been this through a, a lot. Year you found since today. you know two thousand eight, two thousand nine. This is a, a variant of my Mets fans or crybabies take. I guess now I'm, I'm going with Phillies fans or crybabies, but no, I mean. <laughs> Phillies fans have had it tough for a while now, but I'm yeah. just saying you've you've seen winners, you've seen titles. It's happened before. Yeah, and I think the I think that's why a lot of what a lot of the excitement is is about because unlike the Mets who have not won a World Series in my lifetime, <laughs> like <laughs> it's it's still in relatively in relatively Ooh. recent memory. Like Jason Worth, who was a big part of those you know oh seven oh eight oh nine teams, threw out the first pitch yesterday. He threw it to Bryce Harper, who he played with, and Bryce yeah. Harper's not that old, and like. You know, I don't think any of those guys are still in the league, but a lot of them were recently. And, you know, 13 years is not a very long time. And even then, like 11 years, that 2011 team was the was the cream of the crop, in, in yeah. my opinion, even though they lost in the first round. And everybody remembers that. And I think a, a lot of the reason that that people are so excited now, in addition to just this being a very fun team that's played a lot of fun games and is winning a lot, is we remember just what a buzzsaw those like 2010, 2011 teams were and how much fun it was to see them like to go to the park and not be let down. Uh, Cause I think the past few years <laughs> yeah. have been like, have actually been very, very bleak. But like you said, the ultimate success is in, in the recent past that it's still very viscerally present. And just the way the Phillies have played in the past couple of weeks is something that they played with like a, a confidence and inspired an optimism. I haven't like, you know, I haven't felt since since uh, 2011. And I think that's why a lot of people are so excited. Yeah, I wanted to ask about the experience of watching this team because I don't disagree. Like, they're so fun. They keep hitting these incredibly timely home runs. They seem to just have genuine love and affection for one another. I finally got to see a baseball player kiss another part of a baseball player yesterday <laughs> i got to see it i got to see kyle schroer just give a little kiss you know, we're gonna little... see we're gonna see an open mouth kiss if they win the world series <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm all but certain i'm rooting for this if any of them are interested in it you know like again they don't have to kiss if they don't want to kiss but if they want to kiss they should feel free to kiss so they're so fun and i think that like you know there there are components of the of this team where you just you feel a tremendous amount of confidence. And it can be weird to watch them because all of that is true. And then their their biggest glaring deficit relative to other teams is just still a glaring obvious deficit, right? Like they are still terrifying to watch in the field. Every time they manage to execute a double play, I go, yes, they have done it because you wonder a little bit. And so I'm curious what it is like to have those two conflicting aspects of the viewing experience sort of coexist with one another because you know you're you're a fan base that is prone to great joy and also easy catastrophizing and i respect that but i'm just curious like what does it feel like to watch them 
given the fact that, you know, sometimes Reese Hoskins, he just can't catch the ball, Bauman. He just can't catch it. Reese, so the ironic thing about Reese Hoskins' defense is it stresses me out not at all because the, well, he, the person he replaced at first base, Ryan Howard, could not throw <laughs> yeah, the ball okay, to second okay. base. Like, even money, if he's trying to complete a, a 3-6-3 double play or get a base stealer and a rundown, the ball ends up in left field. So because Hoskins doesn't do that, I don't feel any anxiety. Now, Alec Bohm thrown across the infield yeah, that also is feels bad. Yeah, or any time a ball gets hit to Nick Cassianos and right, I think like one of the big, oh God, this might happen moments was in game one of the division series against the Braves when they were in the process of blowing that lead and the ball gets hit in the right and Cassianos makes a shoestring catch and it looks like he, it looks like he thought he had it the whole time. But he's not a, a defensive outfielder I really take for for granted. And he's made a few of those catches, definitely against against San Diego on balls that look dangerous off the bat. Yeah. And it just seems like, you know, not everything is going right. You know, there was the defensive miscue in game one of this series. They've had a couple. Uh, you know, I remember Stott having a bad throw. I might be conflating the Braves series on the last homestand with the, with the last round of the playoffs. But it's still popping up here and there. Yeah. But they're throwing and catching the ball. More or less, so everything's good. You know, that's the standard for can they throw and catch the ball? Most of the time. Most and, of the uh, time. Everything will take care of itself. Let me just say, Cole Hamill's still planning to come back in 2023, so we can't quite close the book yet on the 2000s Phillies, perhaps. Okay. Maybe. <laughs> I do feel an apology is necessary on my part when – the Phillies acquired JT Realmuto and uh, and Zach Wheeler both times. I decried the move on on the Ringer.com, my former employer. <laughs> the Realmuto trade because I was really high on Jorge Alfaro, who didn't get off the bench in this series. I, yeah, you know, Jason yeah. and I talked about this yeah. <laughs> on Fangraphs Audio last week. How much we love Jorge Alfaro, but also Sixto Sanchez. And my ideal plan for the Phillies, you know, I wasn't, I had no idea Zach Wheeler would turn into this. And I was like, for that money, they could have just brought back Cole Hamels on a one-year contract and and kept their powder dry and, you know, tried to put together something, you know, you know, line up a, another free agent signing. I don't remember who I had in mind. But Cole Hamels has not has basically not pitched in the majors since yeah. <laughs> since then. And Zach Wheeler has been the Zach Wheeler we saw. So you hired this guy, Meg? I'm this not is wrong the quality a lot, of analysis. But I was wrong about this. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sorry. <laughs> So there's a, a listener in our Effectively Wild Patreon Discord group who has been posting seismic monitoring data from, <laughs> I guess, the closest station to Citizens Bank Park, which apparently is not close. It's like halfway to Atlantic City, but a few times- oh, what's that, the town? What's I don't the... know. I, I, let me see if I can find if, if they said what it was, but it's not even close, and yet it sure seems like lining up- big Phillies events at home games with spikes in this seismometer, it seems like it's actually registering from many miles away. And I saw some tweets and videos of like people a mile away from the park and like just kind of getting the atmosphere and, yeah. and all the noise leaking out of the houses and car horns honking and everything when something good would happen or a game would end after a Phillies win. So you were in the stadium and I think we could all see when they would show cameras that were like in the outfield or wherever, like it, they were just shaking. I assumed that you were shaking or being shook. <laughs> so I, <laughs> what was it like in there? So I got punted out to the, the Ox box and left field yeah. for this series. And the first 
big hit. I think it was it was Schwarber in Game Three. Like it was rocking. I don't think I'd ever experienced that in a baseball stadium before. I was hoping he was like halfway from Philly to Atlantic City is like sort of around like Millville area. So I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, the uh, I'm gonna we're, I'm gonna get letters. I know it's not exactly that, but <laughs> anyway, those uh, censors like Philly fans are quite sensitive. So I'm mm-hmm. sure it's. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure they, they could feel something. Yeah, those videos you were talking about, like a mile from the stadium, just hearing the roar re- really clearly from like, you know, the front porch of your row house. It's I mean, it's a lot of noise and a, a lot of a lot of excitement. It's one of the loudest, you know, one of the loudest environments I've been in. And, you know, I've covered World Series before. It's, you know, maybe this is just my personal chauvinism, but I do think that there's something about this environment that's a little louder than other places. And, you know, not to slag off Minute Maid Park, for instance, which I think is a, a great playoff environment that I've been yeah. to more times that I can count. But I, you know, just the the way the stands go straight up, more or less straight up in that in the the bowl behind home plate, just funneling all the sound back out onto the field, it gets really, really loud. So Bryce Harper had a weird year, right? Like Harper was off to a great start. He got hurt. He looked obviously compromised for long stretches when he came back. He has been he was just lights out in this championship series. And one of the things that I thought was interesting listening to the broadcast was just the seeming 180 that has happened in terms of our collective understanding of Harper because for so long he was put in juxtaposition with Mike Trout and he was obviously on the wrong end of that equation and now he has had two MVPs and he had this big moment. So what what do you think the the Harper sort of in progress legacy looks like now because on the one hand like he had that rough stretch but also he just sent his team to the World Series so it seems like it's pretty good. I almost don't believe that this is the same guy from the first round cuz he looks you know I was I was convinced that you know only being uh, in the cover of Philly's home games in the playoffs. I was convinced I, I would stay home the entire postseason. I, didn't I remember that. Out of the, <laughs> I didn't think they'd get out of St. Louis. And a big part of that was how lost and how desperate Harper was. Like in that last homestand, he like made a couple dumb base running decisions. Yeah. That, that in the same way, like Chase Utley had done this in the past where things things weren't going right. And he was just trying to make too much happen on the, on the bases. And I was just like, you know, this guy's going to go – he looks he looks still hurt and he's probably going to go 1 for 13 and they're going to go home in the first round and it's just like since really the start of the Braves series he's been the best player on the field on a field with with plenty of other really good players on yeah. it. And I think that him being on the wrong side of the Mike Trout equation has continued to obscure how many players he would be on the right side of the equation with. <laughs> yeah. That when he is on like he's one of the best handful of, of hitters in the in the world. And I mean, just the the fact that he seems to seek out these big moments, I know, you know, I know that can be sort of a squishy thing, but, you know, he really does embrace the pressure and he's, you know, he's had an interesting relationship with the Philly fans. I think he's, he's worked so hard to ingratiate himself with, with the, <laughs> the fan base. I don't know that anybody has ever pandered harder, but he's he's hit all the right buttons. It's to the point where, like, my friends are like, obviously he's just saying this because it's the right thing to to say, but also he's he's trying so hard. Like, it's hard to, to dislike him, but the Phillies in particular, their fans have a, a long history of chewing up and spitting out the best player on the team when the team is is frustrating. You know, and if it can happen to Mike Schmidt, it can, who got famously got booed, it can it can happen to anybody. Right. And so, you know, he's 
had his ups and downs. I think everybody realized that he was basically the only good thing about the team last year. But, you know, how many of the biggest hits in Philly's history does Bryce Harper have in the past nine days? And <laughs> right. like the fact that that he called a shot to to come here and like this was always the plan. This was always what everybody involved in, in that signing had in mind was precisely the kind of moment we saw on Sunday. Like, I don't think they're going to beat the Astros. They might never win you know they might never come closer to a title than they are right now while he's here but he's got this and i think yeah. that, that he's put in so much so much positive social capital in the bank in the, in the past week that like he's gonna go down as you know people are talking about him his signing it's like one of the greatest free agent signings in in the history of the city you know across all sports and you know talking about him the, the same way the you know astros fans talked about the justin verlander trade and i think that's a pretty good parallel it's hard to find fault with anything he's he's done since he's been here yeah this is only his fourth year of of what was it a 13-year deal or something but like if he wins a world series here who cares what happens in the last nine right right? i mean even the pennant and the part he played in the pennant goes a long way toward justifying it you know not to mention the fact that he's just like been a good player and he won an mvp award even when the, (laughs) the phillies were not that great so i think at this point yeah if it weren't for trout it's really it's kind of done a disservice to him that those guys kind of debuted around the same time and yeah. you know we're lumped together Trout and Harper I mean, you could make the case that that you'd rather have Harper's career if you're someone who really values like being famous or or being in the postseason or successful in the postseason at this point. That's a differentiator. I mean, he's not the player that Trout was. It's possible that like by the time it's all said and done, like if if Trout has more injuries, like who knows what could happen and maybe or, Harper makes up some of that ground. But or as we see the the angels disintegrate and Shohei Otani make noises about wanting out. Mm-hmm. Bring Trout home. Bring Trout home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, maybe they could be together. That'd be a great ending for the saga. Can you imagine being Brandon Marsh in that moment? You're like, but I just secured an everyday center field role. And now this guy's here again. What <laughs> now I'm playing him left. You know, yeah. they'll, they'll have to move. It. Like, Harper can go back to the outfield once his elbow gets fixed. They can move Schwarber to DH and Cassianos. You know, they can, they'll probably need to offload salary. There you go. Yeah. I've, I've solved it. <laughs> Every time I see Marsh and Syndergaard, I think like, wow, you guys were just recently on <laughs> the yeah. most depressing, boring, sad sack team. And here you are on the most exciting team in the World Series. It's quite a come up. But I was just going to say, like, I think Harper, like the expectations for him were blown up to just unmeetable proportions yeah. just by being a SI cover and a phenom as a teenager. But he's really made good on every possible realistic expectation you could could have had for him. He's I mean, come pretty close to meeting those expectations. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. multiple MVP awards. And, you know, I know like he'll be kind of inconsistent at times or he'll go from having an MVP season to having an off year for him, not a bad year, but an off year. And you add it all up and he just turned 30 and he's like well over 40 war. I mean, he's like clearly like barring some kind of catastrophic injury. He's going to be a Hall of Famer, yeah. you know, oh, and yeah. has also been like one of the most visible players during his era in baseball. And he's so much fun to follow like earlier in his career. 
people disliked him, I, I guess, either because he was more brash maybe than he is now or just because like people attributed that to him because of things that were written about him or just because he was supposed to be so good and people were kind of jealous or whatever it was. But now you don't hear that so much anymore. It's just like he's competitive. And yeah, like I guess he likes the limelight, but he's thriving in it. And he's just really entertaining. Like every time you watch him do something demonstrative and celebrate a hit, it's just fun. Like that's the other contrast to Trout. Like he hasn't been as good a player as Trout, but he is more watchable in an obvious way and just kind of more telegenic. And, you know, the expression he made after the Schwarber bomb that just instantly became like an inner circle Hall of Fame baseball Twitter (laughs) gif. Yeah. Mike Trout has never made that expression, you know, like not publicly, at least. Meg, we were talking about this on our Patreon live stream this weekend, right? We were trying to think of like trout gifts, you know, like what's yeah. the definitive trout gif? And they're like only a couple, right? Like there's the one where he kind of looked around quizzically when Joe Madden walked a guy with the bases loaded and he was like, what's happening here? Is this happening? There was that. And then there was the one you cited where he fired off the arrow with two holes after Fernando Rodney did the arrow right prematurely. And that was kind of all we could come up with off the top of our head. So like he just, you know, he's he's not good in in that way. If the point is to entertain us, Bryce Harper entertains us in a more obvious like pops off the screen way, whereas Trout entertains us like when we look at the war leaderboards, I guess, <laughs> largely. But they're just totally different personalities and, and different players. But if not for Trout, we would be talking about Harper as, as what he is, which is like since he debuted, you know, a top 10 position player, certainly, and, and maybe a top five or so hitter, like I guess, you know, he hasn't been the best player of all time, which maybe is what people were expecting after the SI cover. And Trout has been or was for a while. But other than that, Harper's been been fantastic. And I'll, I'll mention this. I think Harper Harper also suffers by comparison to Juan Soto because yeah. like yeah. he was supposed to take the Nationals to the promised land. Yep. And then the instant he leaves, a better like a better version of him comes along basically which i didn't think was possible and you know when when he was a prospect comes along and immediately wins the world series there and i think you know i think that really did get to him a little bit the fact yeah. that he didn't get to check that box and as soon as as soon as he left the nationals won at all and i think this whether they win or you know obviously you know he in the the post game press conference last night was all about oh i don't like looking back and i was like if i had your life i'd be pretty okay looking back but <laughs> yeah. you do whatever you need to do to to motivate yourself but he was he's still very he still seems to be very focused on on beating the astros and and good luck to him cuz it's mm-hmm. going to take some doing yeah, I want us to talk about the the coming World Series definitely, but maybe let's spend a little time on on the Padres of it all here because yeah. I think we'd be a bit remiss if we didn't acknowledge the the year that they had had, but also some of the decisions that were made in this game in particular. And so I guess what I would like to ask both of you is, what do you make of the fact that we didn't see Josh Hader pitch at all yesterday? <laughs> Yeah, look, it's it's questionable. I think I'm not saying this completely lets Bob Melvin off the hook, but I think this is kind of a product of haters' inability or unwillingness to go two innings, right? Or even to go more than one usually. You know, the most it seems like you can ask of him is four outs. And because of that, you couldn't just put him in and let it ride, right? Like yeah. you, you had to use someone after hater. And you could certainly say, well, worry about 
after hater after hater, right? And just have your unhittable lefty come in to face your best lefty opponent. And, you know, if that had happened, almost certainly there would not have been exactly the same outcome that there was and things would have been better. That's second guessing. I know there were people first guessing at the time too. <laughs> and so, yeah, when you look at it and, and you lose with a, a righty versus a lefty and hater is out there, like he wasn't warmed up, which again, you could put that on Melvin, I guess you could say, well, he yeah. should have been warmed yeah. up. But also, like, you know, you have Suarez, who's been really great and has been effective against lefties for whatever it's worth. And it took a really great job by Bryce Harper to to do what he did, right? Because he had that great take on the changeup. And then also, like, the ball he hit out was, like, a 99-mile-per-hour pitch on the outside corner, right? I mean, it wasn't, like, an obvious mistake, necessarily. Hits one in the air. Into the wind, by the way. Like I, yeah. the wind, that one was right in my face all afternoon, and <laughs> it was straight in. There were a couple other balls that I think could have gotten out that got knocked down by the wind earlier in the game, but it just shifted enough. And I think part, of, like part of the reason I had that reaction to the home run was I didn't think there was a chance it was getting out until it, like, it just kept carrying and carrying and carrying. Mm. And like I thought the wind was going to knock it down for sure, and yeah. probably some of that is just my own pessimism, but that's just the way things have been going all day. So I like I have a hard time faulting Robert Suarez for for anything yeah. he did in that appearance. He just got beat by an incredible a bat by an incredible hitter. You know, with that said, like I do wonder why Melvin's explanation was oh hater wasn't warmed up and like well why wasn't he warmed up? Like right. you know, why wasn't he available for a situation like that? And I think, you know, that was probably the one misstep I I think Bob Melvin made in definitely in this game. Yeah, I think he also noted like they wanted to mix and match. They wanted to like use those guys in tandem to get through it because otherwise, I, I guess, like obviously they would have used Hater one way or another. This wasn't like a, a Zach Britton just, you know, never being used by Buck Showalter situation. Like if they had gotten through that inning, Hater would have pitched the next inning. But right. yeah, you would have just had to go with probably like Luis Garcia or, or Tim Hill or someone to finish it off. Like unless Hater made an exception and was like, no, this time I actually want the ball and finish it off but on most teams i think if you got to that point and you have your nasty closer you probably would be confident just bringing them in to finish the game whereas with hater it seems like you can't do that and so i i understand the thinking you know if he had to do it again i don't know like he stood by the decision making obviously he wouldn't like do it exactly the same again because he wouldn't want Bryce harper to hit a home run but you know <laughs> like the the process as opposed to the outcome like you know it's definitely fair to question it and and maybe it was the wrong decision it wasn't like as clear cut a blunder as i would normally say it would be when you don't have your best pitcher facing the best hitter well, I think it reminds me of the 2015 Big Ten Baseball Tournament, which also famously mm. featured Jay Cronenworth. Yeah, that comp was on the tip of my tongue, too. <sighs> I think we're just going to have to bring you back like once a week so that you can poke at Ben about college baseball. <laughs> I think that's the takeaway here. <laughs> yeah. I don't have any other thoughts. I, I mean, I guess my, other, my only thought is I agree that it's just weird that he wasn't warm. You know, I, I appreciate the the logic i don't think it was like a, a particularly or a tellingly egregious misstep but it was you know it's it's not what you want 
And uh, and since we <laughs> use a phrase from the former Phillies manager, yeah, uh, yeah. And since we have a a convenient counter narrative or counterfactual that we can compare it against, you know, I maybe mean, would have like been like. Well, what does that counterfactual feel like? Okay, let's try it on, see how it goes. Yeah, there was a a quote from Austin Nola that I don't know if I've ever heard this term before. He was talking about Harper taking that change up from Suarez. Unbelievable take, unbelievable take. That's the pitch he swings at. The fact he patiented it up and took it. That's Suarez's best pitch, hands down. Patiented it up. (laughs) I haven't heard that before. That might not be an idiom. He might just be from Louisiana. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, so so that was the one questionable call. And, and then the other one, I guess, was Grisham's bunt, right? Which it wasn't clear whether that was called or whether Melvin was just covering for him afterwards, saying that that, that was part of the plan or not. Like, again, it's fascinating. I, it is, yeah. Yeah. It's the most interesting thing I think anybody's done this postseason (laughs) in terms of like trying to find the logic behind it because you can see it because even though the the runners were it's a left left matchup he's already sorry I've been thinking about this (laughs) for the the past 18 hours so the reason that that Grisham's hitting their left left against Suarez is Will Myers has already pinch hit for Jose Azokar who that was absolutely the right decision to pinch run for Josh Bell during the rainy inning against Sir Anthony Dominguez because, yeah. I mean, that's why they got ahead. That's why they got the lead in the game. Your boy Jorge Alfaro was out there, though. Yeah. I'm, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's definitely – and why carry three catchers if you're only ever going to use one and he can't throw? I don't yeah. understand that. Yeah. But, I like, I can understand, like, you think that, that Alfaro is too much of a strikeout risk and in a high leverage situation, maybe you don't want to, to use him. Fine. But, like, they had two catchers on the bench. But the bunt, you know, it's against a left-handed pitcher. Grisham's really fast. It's a disadvantageous mm-hmm. matchup. It's tricky right. conditions. Slippery out there. It's a yep. bad defensive infield. Right. And mm-hmm. even if he doesn't beat it out, you get two runners in a scoring position. And what's the best way the Padres have found to score in this game is advancing on a wild pitch. Like that brings that into play. And so I can almost, I can almost bring myself to that being a good idea. And you remember Ranger Suarez is one of the best defensive, one of the best fielding pitchers in the game. Like that's not going to, and you know, and Real Muto is one of the best defensive catchers in the game. And I can almost talk myself into it. That's why I think it's such a fascinating move. And then you remember, this is one of your two last outs that you have in the season. And this is what I, I, keep thinking about like that's what i keep coming back to when i think about late game pinch hitting decisions or late game bunning decisions or stealing bases late in the game is how are you you have a finite number of outs left in your game or in your season how do you spend them and because they're a resource and this is how they chose to to spend one of their last two outs in the season and like i it's i can almost see the logic but it's just such a I don't know. I, I almost wrote like an entirely different article about this because it, like, it's such a fascinating decision to me. Mm-hmm. Whether it was Grisham or Melvin or both who who ended up putting that on, like I'm, you know, I'm always in favor of, of trying to to bunt for a hit. Like I think that's an underused strategy. The conditions favored it, but the situ the stakes, like what a call to make. Yeah. Whether yeah, you know, whoever ended mm-hmm. up actually being responsible for it. Right. Yeah, I think we just need to do a better job of of not conflating sack bunts and bunts yes. for hits. Like yes. In in Agreed. this case, the outcome, the result, 
may as well have been a sack bunt. Like, you know, he didn't really get it where he wanted to. He was trying to drag it down the first baseline and it, it just didn't get far enough. It didn't get past the pitcher. But even so, like he was clearly trying to bunt for a hit. Yeah. And bunting for a hit is is good sometimes. It's fine, you know, depending on the matchup. And maybe this was not the perfect conditions for it, but you can make a case for bunting for a hit there much more easily than you can for sack bunting. So we should be clear about which he was at least attempting to do. Just, you know, kind of the like stop bunting, kill the bunt kind of sentiment, I think led to a lot of people just not differentiating between types of bunts. And there is a a difference there, both in terms of the advisability of it, but also the entertainment value of it too. Because a sack bunt is boring in my mind. A bunt for a hit is fun and exciting often. So... Yeah, I think, you know, both of these questionable decisions, like I'm sure Padres fans will be thinking about them forever and mulling them over as one does when one's team loses a heartbreaker. But they weren't the worst in that genre, you know. So, yeah. Yeah, I do think the the Padres, I do feel for them because like 85% of of like the the fun weirdness that people are talking about with the Phillies, at least 85% of that the Padres had too. And like, yeah. You know, they got beat up in a couple very specific places in the series, but I don't think they played badly. I don't think Melvin managed badly. You know, you could make a case that they would have been a deserving pennant winner too. And it's a rough way to to end the season, but I, you know, do want to give them a lot of credit. I think that I don't know, this is gonna sound patronizing and I just don't care, but like they've got a lot to to feel good about coming out of this. And just the, you know, the weird way that game ended, the fact that, you know, as a Phillies fan, I know what it's like to have one of the worst moments in your team's history being played on on every highlight reel for the next 10 years. And that's probably going to happen with this Harper home run. But, you know, they've had a hell of a ride themselves. And I hope that doesn't get forgotten as we uh, get farther removed from from this series. Because it was a I mean, it was it's sort of like the 2015 World Series in that it only went five games, but every game was exciting and memorable in its right. own way. Mm-hmm. Well, before we we look ahead to the World Series matchup, do we maybe want to take a second, given what you just said, uh, Bauman, to to ask, like, where do the Padres find themselves right now? I mean, right now they probably find themselves sad and disappointed, but as they look ahead to 2023, like, what is our what is our way too early sort of prognostication about where they stand as a roster and an organization? I'm annoying. <laughs> Well, I haven't uh, done a a full deep dive consideration of how the Padres roster stacks up for next season, but they're obviously bringing back a lot of the guys who got them here. And now they get a full season of Soto and Hayter, et cetera. And hopefully Tatis, hopefully most is of a season of Tatis. So imagine this lineup that we've seen for the past few weeks and just slot Tatis in there somewhere among Soto and Machado and co like that should be a a fun team should be a good team still don't know if they'll contend with the Dodgers or not but I don't immediately see any reason why they should not be back here next year yeah I think that's exactly right and you know for a full answer I would say tune into fangraphs.com tomorrow because I'm (laughs) writing about aspects of this it's Mm -hmm. almost like I know what our editorial calendar is I know (laughs) but yeah, they're going to need to to plug holes, but you can get another I don't know, 
hell, you could just bring back Josh Bell if you wanted to. Like, you know, you could, or, you know, I think Jerkson Profar is probably on his way out. I think that he's made himself some money this season. But you can get guys to fill those roles. And you just look at the core of like Tatis, Machado, Soto, Darvish, Joe Musgrove, you know, like the guys who are tough to get, they already have. Yeah. And I have no reason to be anything but optimistic. The nice thing about this playoff format is you don't need to beat the Dodgers over 162 games. You only need to beat the, you know, the (laughs) second best team in the NL Central, which is very, very easy to do, it turns out. (laughs) So, yeah, I expect them to be back here or hereabouts next year. Mm -hmm. Two things that you mentioned, Profar. I just wanted to note that that controversial check swing strike on Profar that kind of thwarted an incipient Padres rally, that was called by Todd Titchener at third base. And and when we spoke on the podcast not too long ago about differing rates of calling strikes on check swings, we had data provided by Mark Simon of Sports Info Solutions who who told us at the time, and we mentioned that Todd Titchener, I believe this season or, or for the past few seasons, had the highest rate of calling strikes on check swing appeals at third base. So that was exactly the guy that the Padres would not have wanted over there right then. And again, I didn't think that was the worst call I've ever seen on a check swing. Like, I I don't think he swung, but... You know, who knows? Because there's no real definition of it. And it it wasn't the most egregious, I think. Like, there was a lot of body movement there. But as far as whether the bat went around, I think probably it did. But it's borderline. It was very, I mean, you see bigger swings than that not get called. Yeah. All the time. I, yeah. yeah. I'd call it borderline. I, I think Profar's right to be upset, but I don't think that it's, you know, the Don Denkinger call or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Right. And then the only other thing I was going to mention was Dominguez during that rain inning. If the Phillies had lost that way, that really would have been frustrating. Not just because of like past Phillies losses in rain or anything, but that wouldn't have helped. But just like, Clearly, like he just could not get a grip, and he was throwing wild pitches. He's not the only were... one who couldn't get a grip. That <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he, he got it together. Whatever he did, he regained his grip and just started striking guys out. But there were those little lapses and wild pitches there, and it was just like so clearly related to the rain and the conditions that you know, if you were a fatalistic Phillies fan, then you <laughs> could have said, "Oh, the skies opened up just as we were about to win this thing." Uh, and and then it stopped raining in the in. The bottom half of the inning yeah. it started raining again in the top of the eighth and like at some point in there i don't remember exactly when but i slacked meg and i was like if they lose this game i'm gonna have to move yeah like it's you did say that it's just it was so like almost more than like i'm happy that obviously i'm happy the phillies won the pennant i'm almost as happy that we don't have to do rain discourse yeah mm-hmm. yeah i mean i do think that if possible every ballpark should have a retractable roof that that would be nice i that think would every be good. city should have a retractable <laughs> roof. i've been on this for for years yeah mm-hmm. put the entire planet under a dome and under a dome fix climate I'm sure. yeah, we'll you get don't there. even need yeah. a dome you could just set aside a bunch of land in the midwest and have every single human being on earth have like an acre have a house with an an acre lot like Mm -hmm. we've got enough land to do this and then you can have like farming and mining and manufacturing outposts (laughs) while the rest of us live in peace free you know free from the elements under a dome under a dome (laughs) perfect yeah it's not like i need to see the sun anyway so we don't even know what the sun is yeah So we should talk a little bit about the ALCS. I I just I guess Mike, you probably didn't even see these, but Meg, what did you make of the mid-game in dugout interviews 
that Ken Rosenthal was conducting during this series. So like, you know, Bryce Harper hits the home run. You just go right in the dugout and just put a microphone in Bryce Harper's face, like just violating the sanctity of the dugout. Ken Rosenthal with a suit, a media member in there or or Tom Verducci, as it happens, with a, a very snazzy purple suit and blue tie yeah, ensemble on Saturday, which was not something. Looking I'm... like the trombonist to the <laughs> a big, bad voodoo daddy. Yeah, not a look I had seen out of him before as far as I can recall like he's always you know well dressed well put together but but not quite as colorful as I recall anyway yeah so this was this was new right this was like a little different from you know it's not having a player mic'd up on the field during a game and it's not having someone who is not in the game talk to you from the dugout for a half inning or something this is like a hybrid it's like someone who is in the game but is not currently playing who's in the dugout but you're talking to them during the game and they still have the like talk to the manager for 30 seconds between innings sort of thing too but but this was I don't know if it was new but it was you know kind of newish at least what did you think so I thought it was fine you know we have talked about how we do not like the in-game interview where the player in in the field potentially about to be in the act of fielding which makes it sound kind of dirty (laughs) is being like hectored by the booth because like what if the ball goes to him and he misses it and it's because he's being yacked at in his ear by others so since this isn't that i thought Mm -hmm. it was fine i will say like i thought that we were given more substantive answers than we often get in the course of those. You know, like I thought that the only ones I remember, and so if they talked to Padres guys, I I just don't remember. It's not that their answers were bad. They just weren't memorable to me. Like I thought, you know, Kyle Schwarber talked about how he hit a home run and he did it in a way that was compelling. You know, Harper mm-hmm. talked about laying off that changeup, which I will yeah. say was amazing that he did that. Like people noting yeah. that were right. It was patiented it up. <laughs> right. It was an incredible, incredible mm-hmm. take. So like I thought it was fine. I thought we learned some stuff. I I do like the idea of letting those guys sort of sit in the the moment themselves and with each other maybe for a bit more but Mm -hmm. i I wasn't offended by it you know it didn't bother me yeah you didn't react the way ben did to the ramon laureano (laughs) mid-game interview i mean like that was wild why were we doing that that was so yeah anything that helps us avoid that it's it's so funny like i've known you for like close to 10 years now i don't think i've seen anything make you as angry as that. You were so mad. Yeah, I went full smolts on that. That was, yeah. Yeah. I just, I really, yeah. So anything that helps us avoid that, this was a nice middle ground, I thought. And you're still going to get some, uh, I just went up there looking for a pitch to hit, didn't try to do too much with it. Like that's inevitable. But I think it's right. I think there were better answers, more natural answers, maybe because they're in their habitat. They're in the dugout. I guess you could say they might clam up and be resentful that Ken Rosenthal is intruding or Tom Verducci is intruding, but it seemed like they were okay with it. And maybe because they were in the moment and still like in the heat of it, as opposed to just talking about it hours later when they're yeah. on the sidelines or something. I, I did think it was, you know, better answers and not really interrupting anything other than just their normal mid-inning routine, which is not a big deal. So I thought it was a good compromise, a way to provide a window into the game and kind of get us down to field level without actually being on the field during the game. Yeah, agreed. The big thing with all these things is, I mean, really every 
player interaction is is how down to hang the player is. Yeah. Mm. And the Phillies and Padres both have a lot of guys <laughs> who are down to hang. So I think yeah. that, I mean, the Astros do too. And so it's, this was a, a good place to trial it, but like they kept it relatively short, just one or two questions right. and get back to the game. There's a lot of dead time. You got to fill it somehow. Yeah. yeah. All right. So from a team that's down to hang to a team that's just down, the New York Yankees and the Astros as well. So, the Astros just, you know, ran roughshod over the Yankees as they have to all of their playoff opponents, both of their playoff opponents thus far. And the difference in in vibes between these championship series and like entertainment value, unless you were an Astros fan, was really striking, yeah. I think, because the games were not as entertaining, just the atmosphere was not entertaining. Now, I'm sure if you're a Yankees hater, it was fun to watch the Yankees. I was going to say, I found (laughs) elements of the series highly entertaining. (laughs) Yeah, so there's that. The games themselves were were sort of a slog just because the Yankees were playing like it was a slog. Yeah. I'm not, you know, attributing any uh, lack of motivation or lack of spirit or whatever to them. But it looks like that when a team is not playing well and is not hitting. And the Astros just look unbeatable. Of course, they are not unbeatable. They can be beaten. I wouldn't bet that they will be undefeated this postseason. I would bet on them winning the World Series. But, you know, are they going to to replicate the Big Red Machine not losing a game despite playing more games than the Big Red Machine had to? Odds are against that. You look at the, the two teams that swept their way through their league bracket in the divisional era, right, the 2007 Rockies and the 2014 Royals, and both of them lost the World Series. These Astros are are not those teams. They're obviously- I think they're a little bit better, Ben. <laughs> just a little bit better than that. I think they're just that. a little bit better than that. Your, yeah, your but, lack of non-baseball knowledge is letting you down because they could – can they go faux, faux, faux? Like <laughs> Moses Malone, you know, most famous is a, an athlete from Houston and Philadelphia even, so – no, nothing. All right. <laughs> right. Just absolute no sell for any kind of basketball. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Like everything we could talk a little bit about the World Series matchup to end, I guess. But just like in the series, I mean, Yankees fans are just in full meltdown mode. Like they are, you know, having been beaten by the Astros yet again and and been swept. I said this during our live stream, but I do kind of wonder like whether the the state of Yankees fans psychologically would be better or worse had they just lost in five to the Guardians, which like would have been quite frustrating. But I don't know if it would have been quite as frustrating as beating the Guardians and then getting swept by your playoff nemeses yet again. So either way, it's bad. People are calling for firings. Yeah, go ahead. (laughs) They would have been better off if they had lost to the Guardians. Mm -hmm. Because it's like this is the 2012 loss to the Tigers all over again. Because there's a difference between like, you know, the Guardians are sort of a pesky, annoying team that just, you know, played well. You know, you can talk yourself into still being good and losing to that team. Sure. went up, like you looked in the mirror against the team that you thought that you were closely matched with and you got absolutely atomized (laughs) like it's it's gonna be like you can't talk yourself into there being positives about this this was just as thorough a beat down as you will ever find this late in the playoffs and for a team that up until the midway point of the season had a reasonable case for being the best in the league like you can't 
there is no silver lining to be had. And now, like, I think part of the reason that the Yankees fans are melting down about this, some of it is like the eternal solipsism of watching your team lose in the playoffs, which is all the more intense for Yankees fans because they think their team is the protagonist of baseball <laughs> in a way that that other fans don't. But what are we seeing now? They're going to lose their, you know, they're likely going to lose their best player to, to free agency. They've got all manner of holes. They've got an aging club. They're talking yeah. about, you know, people are calling for the head of the, the long-serving genius general manager to replace him with some McKinsey goon who's going to make the team... <laughs> into the red Sox available maybe well he's busy with soccer I guess but and so what I'm leading up to is (laughs) are Yankees fans getting so hysterical now because the Yankees are the Mets now yeah I mean it seems like that payroll wise right and that's a big I think reasonable complaint that the Yankees have you know to keep things in perspective which Yankees fans are not known for doing (laughs) and you know a lot of fan bases aren't but they won 99 games they made it to the ALCS they basically make the playoffs every year they haven't had a losing season since literally 1992 you know (laughs) like things are, are pretty good they were pretty good this year and obviously they started off at such a great pace that I think that raised expectations for this season. You know, it's almost like raising expectations for Bryce Harper's career by putting him on the SI cover when he's 16. That's how the Yankees started this season, and they didn't end the season like that. And then they get to the end of this playoff run, and they're missing like half their bullpen, and they're missing LeMahieu, and, you know, they're missing a big components of their lineup and their pitching staff and everything. No one's unscathed at this point in the season, of course, but Yankees were were pretty shorthanded. And, you know, you noted that this looked like it was just totally them getting blown away. And it, it felt like that. At no point did this really feel competitive. The games themselves were fairly close, like other yeah. than game three, which was five zip, you know, it's four, two, three, two, six, five. Like these are close games. The Yankees only briefly had leads. I, I guess they very briefly had a couple of leads. It's hard even to remember that they had leads, but it just it never felt like they were going to put up much of a fight. So I think a big part of why Yankees fans are frustrated is just that like they don't have the big dogs Right. And Yankees fans are accustomed to going out and getting the big dogs. So they're watching the Phillies win with Bryce Harper, who was seemingly like predestined to be a Yankee for many Mm -hmm. years. Right. And the Yankees made no effort to go get him or Real Muto or like, you know, the Yankees have a first base hole. Yankees fans say sign Freddie Freeman and they don't. They sign Anthony Rizzo, who is good, but, you know, is kind of your budget (laughs) backup, your plan B to, to Freddie Freeman. Or you have a shortstop hole. And you go get Isaiah Kiner-Falefa, Josh Donaldson, and kind of remake your defense, which they did. And they had a good defense, which was, you know, out of the norm for the Yankees. But, like, Carlos Correa was out there, and this great class of free agents is out there. And I think a lot of this gets heaped on the head of Cashman and and Boone. I think a lot of it should be heaped on the head of Hal Steinbrenner, who is clearly different from his dad in that he's not willing to just blow away any spending constraint. He wants to stay within the luxury tax and competitive balance tax and and economize in a way that Yankees fans are not accustomed to the Yankees doing and that the Yankees shouldn't be in the business of doing, frankly. So there's some justifiable frustration there that other than Garrett Cole, really, the Yankees just haven't gone out and gotten the biggest and the best guys a whole lot lately. And then there's other frustration that I feel like is is maybe a little less 
placed well, more misplaced, and just kind of, you know, failing to maintain perspective about how good the Yankees have been over a really long period. But I think there's some some reasonable frustration there that is not purely related to the Astros trouncing the Yankees yet again. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that it you don't want to swing too far the other direction and say that like everything is is perennially perfect in the Bronx, right? Like we can acknowledge that some of the the fussiness on the part of the fan base is a little silly given the the long <laughs> arc of baseball generally tilting in the Yankees' direction, but I think that we're, we're right to say like you know there are decisions that need to be made, and this is not a a roster that left to its own devices is going to be perfectly competitive next year. Like they are going to have to make some decisions, whether those decisions result in them, you know, promoting from within or trading some guys or actually spending, you know, a good chunk of change this off season. They can't just stand pat and fill a couple bullpen holes and then call it good for next year. That division is too competitive for them to do that. So Mm -hmm. I get it. Yeah. I think even in moments of reasonable complaint, it's useful to maintain some amount of perspective, right? You know, lest <laughs> right. we be accused of being irritating. Yeah. But it's not all sort of hyperbole and fuss. There's there's stuff that needs to be done here to make this club yeah. the equal of Houston. So Yeah. By the way, I think while we were talking, according to the at scoring changes, MLB scoring changes Twitter account, Trent Grisham's bunt is no longer credited with a sacrifice bunt. It's no longer oh. a, a sacrifice, mm-hmm. I guess it was initially. So that's good. Wait, did that take good. the entire day for them yeah. to do? <laughs> I don't know, but but that's the correct ruling, I think. That's just Yeah, they would have just beat the deadline, but this like, because is... they have like 24 <laughs> hours, right, to change scoring decisions. Is that right? Yeah. This is like when I wake up at three in the morning and I'm like, I got to reread that one sentence that I edited 10 hours ago. <laughs> yeah. I've changed one of those exactly one time, by the way, just once. I think part of it, like people think Aaron Boone can't manage a bullpen. And look, every fan base thinks that about their manager, almost everyone. right? And do you think Aaron Boone can manage a bullpen? I don't know. I, I don't know that he's notably bad. I feel like in this series and this postseason, he just didn't really trust anyone reasonably because like most of the, the trustworthy options were taken away or were diminished in some way. So I don't know that he had like no doubt slam dunk guys for the most part. And it seems like, you know, people were criticizing him for not leaving Garrett Cole in longer in one instance, or maybe you could criticize him for not pulling Nestor Cortez whose velocity was down as he was dealing with a groin issue. And, you know, he said, I'm okay and I can stay in. And clearly that was not the case, or at least it didn't work out well because Jeremy Pena hit a three-run homer. What a metaphor. Like losing the season because of denial over a busted crotch. <laughs> yeah. But like there just there weren't any guys you felt really comfortable giving the ball at, at this point in that bullpen. Yeah. I don't think it like, you know, they just they lost so many guys or so many guys were were dealing with some sort of nagging issue. So I don't know. Like I don't know if he's good at managing a bullpen. I don't know if he's bad at it. That's like it's just so often the complaint that any fan base has about its managers can't manage a bullpen because you remember the times when they made some call that didn't work out and it's a case where you can think along with the manager and you may or may not have all the same information that the manager has at their disposal. So I think it's fairly rare for a fan base to think this guy's great at managing a bullpen. Every now and then you see that. But I think one thing that they're responding to is just like the the messaging and the attitude and sort of the public stance of Boone and a perceived lack of urgency, I guess. And like Boone coming out and saying, 
that, you know, we got screwed because the roof was open, right? Or, you know, Severino, I guess, saying that they got lucky, but more so Boone saying that. And as we discussed on the podcast, like, I'm pro-reasonable excuses. If you have a good excuse, go ahead. And obviously, like, luck definitely is a major factor in the postseason. And, yeah, you're going to have balls that go out barely or don't barely, and these things will swing a series. But if you're a manager and you say that as you're getting swept— then it just it looks weak. It, it looks like you're trying to make excuses because you're not good enough. So that's part of it. And the Yankees in this series, they hit 162, 232, 269. That's a 502 OPS. Like unless you're going to say that it's Boone's fault, or I guess, you know, maybe you could ding him for, for not playing Peraza more or, or whatever. Like it didn't seem like there was a great option most of the time, but like the only guy who really hit was, I guess, Rizzo to some extent and, and Bader. And you're just you're not going to win a series that way. I think, though, like the closest I have come to this is a fireable offense. You must get rid of Boone is with the, the 2004 Red Sox motivational debacle. You went like, so long talking about this and didn't mention <laughs> that. And I was like, that did is he like, miss this? Like, I'm not on Twitter that much. But that, like, that's, I was going out of my way to like, okay. defend Boone, like provide the, the pro Boone or, or neutral perspective. When I saw this, though, I was like, okay, they got to make a change because, <laughs> like, <laughs> this is, I mean, this is untenable. You, you cannot be coming out and telling everyone that you were showing your team video that that I can't director of that mental volunteered this. I know it wasn't like it was a gotcha question or something like you know Lindsay did you Adler's, FaceTime yeah. David Ortiz? Right. Yeah, like Lindsay <laughs> happened to see this happening and put him yeah. on the spot or something. No, they came out and Boone says we watched that video of the Red Sox coming back from down 0-3 against the Yankees <laughs> in the 2004 ALCS. We sent it out to the coaches and players. You got to be kidding me. I cannot believe that they offered this. And then Boone apparently like Eduardo Perez during Boone's like I give him more of a pass for this I guess cuz like Boone apparently was like doing a pregame interview with with Eduardo Perez on ESPN radio and Perez FaceTimed with David Ortiz because like what he was wearing a jersey or something and and Boone Oh speaking of pandering yeah yes yeah. wore right. I think an Iverson jersey on Friday night like I looked <laughs> down at at Ashburn Alley yesterday I was like it's Big Poppy wearing a black Brian Dawkins throwback. Yes, that's what it was, right? Yeah. And and Boone loves Brian Dawkins, so like we all love Brian Dawkins. He's only okay. human. Yeah. So so Perez was like FaceTiming with Ortiz. Do you know who so Brian could... Dawkins is? I've heard the name. Aww. Do you know Do you know who Moses Malone is? Uh, heard that name too. Basketball Aww. player up on the podcast twenty minutes ago. Yeah. Did he? Uh, he had goggles, right? Did he have goggles, or am I thinking of someone else? You're. Oh my god! Oh my god! Even <laughs> I know. Did he have goggles? He had goggles. No, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar had. had he did goggles. not have goggles. Oh man! All right. Well, I knew he was a basketball player. Hey, I just Google. I see some goggles. If this is in fact Moses Malone, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm seeing goggles on multiple pictures here. I know more about Moses Malone than the interview. Anyway, <laughs> so evidently he Facetimed to see the Dawkins jersey. 
And then like they kept talking and Boone said he put Big Papi on and I said, hey, he had some advice. Now, he should not have acknowledged that that he was just even hearing, receiving advice from from David Ortiz. But if we assume that like whatever pairs just, you know, put him on the spot when he's doing the interview and put Papi on the screen, I might give him a pass for that. But this was an intentional choice to send around videos of one of this franchise's most ignominious defeats. I guess, like, granted, like, no one on the current Yankees was on the 2004 Yankees. And, like, I don't know if they take it personally that those Yankees were beaten by those yeah, Red but, Sox. So, like, you, okay, wait. I, no. I guess you could say, no. like, <laughs> but, you, but like, the, audi- the audience for this comment is, is Yankees fandom. Yeah. And Yankees fandom is not going to take – like, if you want to send those videos around and keep it quiet, you know, I, like, if you think, hey, the guys will want to see that, like, hey, we, we can come back from down 03. It has been done. Maybe you, like, blur out the uniforms of the, of the team that is losing and just focus on the team that's winning or something. No. But to come out and say – Get him, Meg. Get him. <laughs> okay. I'm, okay. I'm the guy saying he should be fired for this. So, but <laughs> I'm not saying I don't know if he should be fired for it. I mean, it does no, make should. me. Oh, I'll say that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like but, his okay. strength is like a communicator. He's yeah. like the guy right. is good with the media. So the fact that he's coming out and saying this, like, it's not it, the action itself. It's no. the total lack the of judgment, lack of awareness, self awareness. Yeah. Yes. Exactly that the action. <laughs> yeah. That, that and, the action represents. Yes. Yeah. And not only that. Like, you're like, oh, none of these guys were on that team. But you know who is on this team? Famously from New York, Harrison Bader. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Like, imagine. You go to Harrison Bader. Like, Harrison, you're having a tremendous series. We're only in this as much as we are because of you, right? You hit these home runs. It's been spectacular. Would you like to relive one of the worst moments of your childhood? When did Aaron Boone turn into Don Vito Corleone? I mean, they all think that they're that. It's fine. You know, like, it's like, would you like to relive this terrible moment? moment from your childhood would you like to think about it for the rest of the day as you like have your season end around well, you Bader Homer did that game too so know, evidently because he, he was so mad at Aaron Boone <laughs> yeah. like, that's why he went nuts yeah I'm yeah. so pissed I'm gonna pretend the ball is his head yeah so between all of that the excuses and then that and then just like players questioning him right in in one of the games and and just like when he didn't use Clay Holmes right and, yeah. and Clay Holmes kind of coming out more plainly than you're used to hearing you know like at the Padres they all defended Bob Melvin including Hader and everyone else like sure. we understand why he made that move when Boone lost with Clark Schmidt on the mound in, in the ALDS and and Go there Cox. was some miscommunication. <laughs> I assume that has something to do with where you went to college. Yeah, Corkschmidt went to South Carolina. (laughs) Oh, sure. Yeah, everyone knows that. It's relevant. So uh, (laughs) when that happened, uh, there was miscommunication maybe about how available Clay Holmes was. Holmes was like, no, yeah, I could have come in. You know, like, why was I not in that game? And I guess they got on the same page eventually. But the fact that, like, multiple Yankees were publicly saying – that they kind of were perplexed by that decision makes you think maybe there's some some deeper strain of unrest in that clubhouse potentially. But really, just just this Red Sox debacle, like, oh my gosh, I can't I couldn't believe it. The killer with that is that I watched, you know, I looked at the Clay Holmes situation and I was like, oh, this is even worse than the last time Aaron Boone did this exact same thing and failed to communicate about relief pitcher roles yeah. <laughs> in a playoff game. Like this keeps happening. Yeah. So he didn't cover himself in glory there. Like, look, I think he's he's mostly an extension of 
Brian Cashman's will and the rest of that front office. And he's just, he's the public face. I think most of what he does or doesn't do is mandated from on high. And many Yankees fans are probably thinking, great, get rid of a lot of them. <laughs> but but if you want to change Aaron Boone to someone else and you keep Cashman, and I think Cashman is quite good at his job. I think if Cashman were gone, you might miss Cashman, who's been there for 25 years. And look, like maybe if you're in the same job for 25 years, like there's an argument that fresh blood could be beneficial in some ways. Like it doesn't seem to me like he and and that front office have gotten set in their ways. You know, like he dates from the pre-Moneyball era and the Yankees have like completely gotten on board the player development and everything machine. Like they've revamped how they do everything. So it doesn't seem to me like they're stuck in the past or, or married to a particular way of doing things. But who knows? I don't know. I'm just saying I think Brian Cashman, pretty good GM, pretty good at, at handling the market. And I don't know how many GMs would like be an obvious upgrade over him necessarily. Mm-hmm. Boone. I could go either way, you know, like I I think most managers don't make a huge difference either way. So if you got rid of Boone, I wouldn't say you were wrong, particularly after this 2004 Red Sox thing, which I just, I could not believe. As someone who is no longer a Yankees fan, was a, a Yankees fan during 2004, like there is like some residual being offended, just like as someone who is no longer even caring about this team just someone who was at that time i was like you gotta be kidding me i could not believe that that this came out so that just made me question everything i think the most important thing is that i had occasion to look at harrison bader's wikipedia page and i have learned that he is the first cousin of vampire weekends chris bayo and the first cousin <laughs> once removed of scott bayo did you guys know about this wow no, no but i Mm-mm. Wow. I, I only recently learned he was from New York because I assumed that because he played his college ball at Florida, he was from Florida, but they recruit guys from all over the place. No, this mm. is going to be the new Todd Frazier is from Tom's River for however yeah. long Harrison yeah. Bader is a Yankee. But <laughs> I did want to mention because Bader had a great series and, and hit five homers in the yeah. postseason, right? But I said he's the reverse Samson because he cut his hair and, and doesn't look nearly as good in my eyes. But oh, clearly, I think he looks great with the new haircut. I think, well, he's he's got that like gritty grinder look going with the eye black and everything like he, he looks like he could be beloved by Yankees fans someday but I was impressed by something he did in game three in the fifth inning where he he worked a walk like more than I've ever seen anyone work a walk before mm. he just like the Yankees were not scoring he was trying to get something going and he just like stood on the plate almost like yeah. I, I didn't compare and, and do a frame by frame to see like how much closer he was than he usually is but he was like Anthony Rizzoing like more so than Anthony Rizzo he like his arms were like in the strike zone basically he just like stood right on proximity to the plate and when Javier I think it was still Javier at that point would throw inside pitches not even inside just like on the inside part of the strike zone Bader would just whirl away as if like he was about to get hit, which he was because he was basically standing in the strike zone. And there were two strikes, essentially, like one clear strike and one borderline strike where he just like whirled away, like turned away, like, oh, my gosh, this is so far inside. And it worked. They both were ball calls and he worked a walk and he on the way down to first base was like grinning at the Yankees (laughs) dugout. And it was like ingenious. I don't know how often you could get away with that, but like the Yankees, as poorly as they hit throughout the series, they all should have tried it, I think, because that was the only thing they were going to get. But that was like he hacked baseball for a plate appearance there. So when he wasn't homering, he was just like drawing a walk in an extremely active way. So that impressed me. 
Yeah, he played a, a great series. I uh, never need to look at his mouth guard quite as much as I have ever again. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's not that it was a reverse Samson. It was just that the power of his hair got transferred to his mouth guard. Maybe, yeah. And and the one error he was credited with before the McCormick home run into the first row. Who among was... us would not have? <laughs> yeah, that was a judge error if it was anyone. Like yeah. he was obscured by a giant. I was going to so... say he thought he was going to die. Yeah. Yeah, that was obstructed view and his life was, you know, his heart was in his throat probably. So yeah. tough error. I was not a fan of, of the trade at the time because I thought, and, you know, I think I'm still right about this, that the Yankees would end up needing a, another starting pitcher. Yeah. Yeah. Need a, you know, at the time, what looked like a sort of a situational outfielder, but based on the evidence of of uh, this series, it seems like this Brett Gardner is a lot more fun than the last Brett Gardner. So. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah, he is very Gardner esque. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, that's the Yankees. So we'll see whether any heads roll. And uh, based on that, maybe we can talk in a future episode about their offseason and whatever we hear about Judge. Like, I'm surprised they didn't Lane Kiffin, Aaron Boone. <laughs> Does that mean he gets fired? Oh my God, Ben! <laughs> I know he's a college football coach, and people you hate could him. watch one less Marvel show and get a lot of these references. <laughs> so I think I was asked on Hang Up and Listen for a one-word answer on whether the Yankees are going to break the bank on Judge, and it was I was hard for me to restrain myself to a one-word answer, but I I respected the exercise and I said yes. And I no, the best answer to give in that situation is maybe, maybe, right. yeah, <laughs> they have to. Like they have to at least like I mean, they can't be outbid for judge because as as up in arms as their fans are already, yeah. If they lose judge and if they lose him to the Mets or something, like it would just be I mean, it would confirm everything that people are rightfully thinking and saying about Hal Steinbrenner. Like it's it's a tough spot because Judge, like just having this just amazing season, you know, being the age he is and the build he is and all of that, like you could very well end up not being that happy to have Aaron Judge at whatever salary he will be earning several years from now. But like they just have no choice, essentially, yeah. it seems like. Like and there isn't even really an offer that they could make and someone else tops it. Like if Steve Cohen comes in from the top rope and offers like four hundred million or something, like the Yankees fans would still think that the Yankees screwed up by not getting him or not offering him more before the season. Not that they knew he was going to have one of the all-time best seasons of like the best walk year ever. Like it's just, it's a tough spot. Either you sign Aaron Judge for a blank check basically, or Yankees fans will riot even more than they already are. And if you get Judge, then you have a whole lot of money tied up in Judge and Stanton and Cole and and some obvious holes to fill. So yeah. It's it's a tight spot by Yankee standards, obviously. Yeah. All right. So we'll talk more about that, I'm sure. But just quickly on the World Series. So we've got a, a whole lot of days here without baseball and more podcast episodes before this World Series actually starts. But on paper, obviously, like a significant mismatch here, you know, a gap of, of 19 regular season wins. And maybe even more if you look at underlying metrics and run differential and such. And like, even if you just limit it to the Rob Thompson era and you pretend that the Joe Girardi Phillies didn't exist, the Astros still were a lot better over that period. And like everything the Phillies are good at, the Astros are better at. And everything the Phillies are bad at, the Astros are good at. So like Phillies, you know, good starting pitching. Astros, maybe the only team with better starting pitching yeah. this year. Phillies, better bullpen than the Phillies have had. 
Astros, better bullpen than the Phillies. You know, you think of the Phillies as a, a good offensive team. Astros, probably even better there. I guess more debatable maybe late in the season, like without Brantley and with Harper back to full strength and everything. But, you know, during the regular season, the Astros were better. And then, obviously, the the weakness of the Phillies, the defense, the Astros are one of the best defensive teams. So there's no real reason, unless you believe that the Phillies have momentum or team of destiny vibes or whatever it is, that you would pick the Phillies to win this series, right? I mean, it could happen, obviously. Yeah. But I mean, the other reason I can think of is this is going to go out in public and I don't want to get stabbed at Wawa this way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Because you are in Philly right now, and thus you cannot be well, heard. Well, I'm in. <laughs> I'm in South Jersey. We're close enough. Yeah, I was going to say the certain Wawas are even stabbier than the, the ones in Philadelphia. <laughs> but yeah, well, if you're putting on your Bauman in the press box oh, uh, for a moment, this is. Yeah. A... <laughs> I mean, I, I said, I think I said it on the Fangraphs audio I did with Jason Martinez last week before I considered the possibility that the Phillies might win that series. Yeah. I what I thought then was the Astros are gonna just absolutely mess up the Yankees and they were gonna mess up whoever came out of the National League. And I think that's still the like the empir the empirically sound thing. I think the one situation or the one area where I think the Phillies are better than the Astros, they have a deeper lineup. Like they really do go one through nine and like catcher mm-hmm. is kind of a, a weak spot mm-hmm. for the Astros, you know, even though like Chaz McCormick had a, a couple, um, you know, a couple big moments, but like the Astros pitching depth, I don't know how you get around that. Like yeah. the, the Phillies, like the Phillies beat up some good Braves pitchers, but what they did, the reason they got past San Diego is they teed off against like the middle relievers and the Astros don't really have like no, every pitcher, a good. number four starter or right. like, yeah. you know, you know, I wrote about Ryan Stanek in the, the last uh, week or so of the season. And like, what is he like their sixth or seventh best reliever? Yeah. Like, depending on how you, how you measure it. Like I'll say that like the Phillies do have the offensive talent and even by the way, like the Astros bullpen is that deep after the Phillies use sibling rivalry to to take <laughs> Phil Maton out of <laughs> out of the postseason. So maybe like that they set themselves up for success there. But it's just it's going to be really hard to find guys to tee off on the way they did with some of the the Padres middle yeah. and like Sean Maniah and Mike Clevenger got just absolutely wrecked in Game yeah. Four. That's not going to happen. So no. you know I'm not going to say it's. I believe anything at this point, but you do sort of have to go to the Phillies or they have momentum. They're playing with great team spirit. They look like the team of destiny, all of which is true, but that kind of thing remains true until it doesn't. And there doesn't seem to be any warning. So, you know, this could be like a, a 2007 World Series situation or, you know, we could be climbing light poles again in two weeks time. <laughs> yeah. Maybe Brian Cashman should be fired for not naming Rob Thompson manager. Yeah. Rob Thompson was in the Yankees organization for years and years and years. Yeah. He became the bench coach. Little did we know. All he invoked along. he invoked He's... the 2004 ALCS in his press conference cuz somebody <laughs> said you're going to play the Astros. He said, "Don't assume I was on the Yankees in 2004." <laughs> See, that's the proper use of that. That mm-hmm. is yeah, that is sure. directionally appropriate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, how much the Yankees wish they had him. Have you seen this take in the wild cuz like I want to go like 
submit a pitch to the post. Like, <laughs> Yeah, that'd be a good one. Anyway, I, I hope it's a fun series because we haven't had – was Yankees-Guardians the only series that's gone to a final game, right? Gone yeah. the full length this postseason. So, well, the, right. the Mets and Padres in the Oh, okay. sure, in the, sure, sure. In the, yeah, right. But you know, in a longer series, we just haven't seen it. So there's been plenty of entertaining baseball this postseason, lots of fun upsets and Astros dominance and, and everything else you would want. But we haven't really seen – I mean, we haven't seen a series go six or seven, so it would be nice – if that happened, just to stave off the offseason, obviously, but also because it'd be a nice competitive series and be nice if the Phillies actually like put up a fight against the Astros here at the very least. So I'm hoping for that. And yeah, it's just, you know, there's there's no real weakness other than, I guess, maybe the bottom of the lineup with the Astros. But like, look, Verlander got rocked in his first postseason start. You know, who's to say? Like, yeah, obviously, again. all those guys could get like, rocked again. You, but if you're if you're, you're so mean to Meg today, yeah, <laughs> yeah, if you're, if you're banking on one of their starters getting rocked like that's, you know, it's not a winning hope. Yeah, it, it could happen. But yeah, are against it. So and then, you know, it does. And you're like, aha. Ah, I have mm-hmm. succeeded. Yeah. And then Jordan Alvarez is like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Funny, I mean, funny story. <laughs> funny thing yeah. about that. They can sweep even without Jordan doing all that much. I, I mean, right? I guess he, yeah. He got involved. Somebody, at, somebody can control that at some point. <laughs> somebody can be like, oh, we figured out how to do it. You know. Yeah. Sometimes you're unintentionally OPS. mean to our, our uh, to our guests, but I guess it's better for for it to be directed at me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can take it. Ben's afraid so. of me. That's <laughs> <laughs> sure. yeah. I don't want to be inhospitable, but yeah, he had a 675 OPS in in the CS, and the Astros didn't miss a beat. It's like Zach said when we had our Ringer MLB show reunion recently. Like what Jeremy Pena has done has been really important. At the yeah. time, we were saying that because it's like he's getting on in front of Jordan. And so when Jordan does damage, then Pena's right. on base. But in this series, it was just, no, he just does the damage himself. Yeah. <laughs> he's, the, he's the MVP. So He's so, you know, it's not like this was the first time I'd watched the Astros, but especially watching him receive his ALCS MVP trophy, I was like, you're just so baby-faced. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, him and Dahlbeck, they're just like, yeah. they they look so young and then they, you know, they do yeah. so. Not baby-bodied, though. He is pretty built. So Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah should be fun. I hope it's fun. It would be hard to be more fun than the Phillies have been thus far. Yeah. (laughs) But but, uh, I am glad that we could have Mike on to tell us how it was on the scene. Sounds like it was as great as it looked from afar. And I barely remember. (laughs) (laughs) I really like towels. We had a whole bit in our playoff live stream where Meg was talking about just the mechanics of towel waving and uh, (laughs) how evidently it, it poses a problem for some. But I was just saying that visually, the towels are really great, and it always looks like, good on TV. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it looks great on TV. It's yeah. like a synchronized, you know, kind of collective activity. I I far prefer it to thunder sticks or vuvuzelas yeah. or whatever, because like it's a little less obnoxious and, and annoying noise wise. But it just it looks great. I was skeptical about the red ones because usually when you think about towels looking good on tv they're white or like as loath as i am to give pittsburgh credit for anything sports related yellow the, yeah. the yellow ones do look good on tv but i think that the red towels played and i, I did not expect that to be the case mm-hmm. it looked great they, it yeah. looked it looked like such a fun atmosphere it was really rocking yep all right well that'll do it good luck with the world series mike yeah thanks 
All right, that will do it for today, or almost, but not quite. I have a few closing thoughts for you and a pass blast, of course. So a few things that I meant to mention and did not, as far as I recall, we talked about how great the Harper Homer was. It's also great just that he happened to be up at that point, right? Because so rarely does it seem a superstar is up at the most important moment. You can't put a bat in the superstar's hands unless he's on the bench for some reason and he can pinch hit. You can't necessarily choose who's up there at that moment and who gets to have their capital M moment. And so it was fortuitous for the Phillies and for Harper that he happened to be at the plate that we get that all-time moment. Not that Phillies fans would have been upset if someone else had hit the homer instead, but hey, Harper gets a signature highlight there. As Joe Davis said on the call, the swing of his life, although he has many more swings to come. Not unusual for the NBA, let's say where you get to put the ball in the hands of the guy you want taking that shot, or the NFL, where the quarterback always gets the ball and can throw to whomever he wants. In baseball, the batting order dictates all that, and you just hope the wheel spins and lands on the right spot. Also, while it would be nice if Harper got his first championship, it would also be great if Dusty Baker got his. I guess that's the one reason for neutrals to root for the Astros. Not that everyone has to hate the Astros because of the sign-stealing thing, which happened several years ago at this point. Maybe you want the best team to win. Maybe you want them to be rewarded for their team-building over a period of several seasons. But if you're like most people and you're rooting against the Astros, probably, and for the upstart underdog Phillies, seeing Dusty have his day would be one reason to pull for Houston. I was also going to say I bet you could go back to when Joe Girardi was fired and get some good freezing-cold takes at old takes exposed of us talking about the Phillies at that point. I seem to recall on one episode around that time that we talked about which organization was in a worse spot, the Angels who had just fired a manager named Joe or the Phillies who had also just fired a manager named Joe. I'm pretty sure we came down on Angels because we acknowledged that the Phillies still had a chance to make the postseason this season and whatever we may have said about their long-term future perhaps still applies. But yeah, we did not see pennant-winning Philadelphia Phillies coming at that point in the year. To be fair, neither did most Phillies fans, I would imagine, or just about anyone at that point. And in my defense, I did pick the Phillies to win the third NL wildcard before the season started, so that's something. I just didn't pick the third NL wildcard to make the World Series. It does amuse me, though, that Yankees fans, I've seen some saying we should do what the Phillies do and go get the superstars, which that much is true. But I don't know that the Yankees necessarily need to emulate the Phillies. Let's not forget, the Yankees were a far better team than the Phillies during the regular season. The Phillies made the playoffs because they expanded the playoff field this year. They've been good in October, does not mean they were a great regular season team. And of course, they had struggled to make the playoffs up until this point. So they've had a real Cinderella run. But let's not make too much of it. I've also seen some Yankees fans complaining about the one-dimensional offense and all of that. It, it seems like they took some steps to rectify that this year. The Yankees had like a league average strikeout rate. Their base running was much better than last year. Their defense was much better. They haven't hit in the playoffs. And yeah, they struck out too much, but that doesn't mean their offense was not constructed for the playoffs. Then again, that's a refrain we've heard about the Yankees for years. Even though being a homer reliant does not seem to be a disadvantage on the whole in October. Striking out a ton and not hitting homers, yep, that's not good. But not too many people were complaining about how that offense was built when it was firing on all cylinders early in the season. They could go get a big lefty slugger, though. Seems odd that they don't have one of those in Yankee Stadium. Okay, a few people have sent us a recent episode of Star Talk, the podcast, as well as a video excerpt from it that I will link to on the show page. I have actually appeared on that podcast and I subscribed to it. I don't listen to it all that often, and I had not listened to this episode 
in which Neil deGrasse Tyson talks about exit speed and launch angle, and as far as I can tell, makes a mess of it. And look, I know Neil can be a big buzzkill. That's kind of his thing. He comes along and he spoils everything by nitpicking. Now, we respect pedantry on this podcast, but for one thing, it should be fun and not too self-serious, and for another, it should be correct. If you're going to come with pedantic corrections, you got to get them right. And in this episode, he argues that MLB, or whoever is calculating exit velocity, launch angle, etc., is calculating it wrong. And hey, he knows his science, but I don't think he knows his baseball batted ball measurements. Because in this excerpt, he repeatedly says he doesn't know how these things are calculated, but then confidently declares that they are calculated wrong. And really, he could have tried Googling before seemingly basing a whole episode and rant about this because much of the basis of his complaint was about radar and about how radar cannot capture these measurements perfectly given some constraints. I'm not sure whether he would have had a point if it were radar being used, but it is not radar being used, and it hasn't been for some time. StatCast uses Hawkeye cameras and software to measure these things, so as far as I can tell, all of his objections about how all of these measurements and readings must be incorrect are themselves incorrect because they're not calculated the way that he is assuming that they are calculated, and they haven't been for a long time. And even when they maybe were early on, they were consistent with what we see now. So I think he's off base here. And I think perhaps he could have done just a smidge of research before declaring the entire industry's approach to measuring batted balls flawed. I will not retaliate by arguing that the astrophysicists are doing their job all wrong too. I'm sure they're great. And also, we got a lot of responses to our discussion on the preceding episode about a 75-foot-tall batter and whether one would be viable for an MLB team. I think we came down on the side of no, and not just because they don't exist, but that generated a lot of discussion and responses. People pointed out some factors we hadn't considered. For example, Falafel, Patreon supporter, says, The 75-foot-tall player would still have to swing a regulation bat. That strike zone is very large just by the law of averages. You're almost never going to make contact, especially since your hands probably cover most of the bat. Had not considered that, had considered the fact that you would take so long to swing that you could not make contact, but also the bat would just be a teeny tiny little matchstick in your hands and you'd have an enormous zone to cover. Would probably be tough to make contact, even bunting. Raymond, Patreon supporter, also notes that the giant could just make sure to exhale as the pitch is thrown. So the giant could just huff and puff and blow the ball down. Paul, Patreon supporter, says, I think you overlooked the impossibility of throwing a strike to this batter. I am 75 inches tall, 6 foot 3, and I just measured from the bottom of my shoe to the hollow of my knee. That came out to 22 inches. This means that the bottom of the 75 foot tall man's strike zone would be 22 feet above the plate. No catcher would be able to handle that, so striking out the batter is impossible since he just stepped forward to first base on any strike three. I think we did consider that it would be hard to throw a pitch in the strike zone because you'd basically have to throw it on a pop-up type trajectory to get it there. But it's true that the catcher wouldn't be able to catch it, except maybe if it came down on kind of a parabolic trajectory past the giant. That could work. But Paul also says, upon reflection, my family thinks that this player would be an excellent DH or even pinch runner. He's guaranteed to get on base and will be able to simply steal bases on any pitch, so he's a guaranteed run. Good point about the pinch running. Though again, not sure if he's worth carrying on the roster, given the problems with clothing and housing him, etc. How would he travel with the team? Can he sit on the top of the plane? Could you just send him by boat or by train somehow? Would he get there in time? Lastly, Ted O, Patreon supporter, says the 75-foot batter doesn't matter. What matters is their defensive contribution, literally blocking every home run. 
or depending on their relative width, they could just stand by each hitter's pull side and shift every at-bat. Good point, they could block homers, but could they catch them? Lots of factors to consider. All right, I will leave you now with the Pass Blast. This is episode 1920, and the Pass Blast comes from 1920 and from Jacob Pomeranke, Sabres Director of Editorial Content and Chair of the Black Sox Scandal Research Committee. Jacob says this is on the same through line of how can you really tell if a game is fixed that Meg and I were commenting on at the end of the 1919 Pass Blast. This is 1920, the smoke before the fire. One common thread he writes in any scandal that threatens the integrity of the game, whether it's game-fixing, PEDs, or sign-stealing, is that it's only hearsay until someone on the inside comes forward to confirm the truth. In the Black Sox scandal, that insider was Billy Maharg, or Maharg, maybe, M-A-H-A-R-G, an ex-boxer and ball player who served as a go-between for gamblers in the eight White Sox who conspired to lose the 1919 World Series. In September of 1920, Maharg finally came forward and told a Philadelphia reporter what he knew about the big fix. Within 48 hours, Shoeless Joe Jackson and three other White Sox players also confessed to accepting bribes, and they were all suspended. Veteran reporter Hugh Fullerton had been trying to break open the scandal for months, but couldn't get anyone to talk on the record about it. I've been working on the story for months, and he just tweeted out, or told a Philly reporter about it. Here's what Fullerton wrote in The New Republic after the Black Sox scandal was exposed. It has been the favorite defense of officials, club owners, umpires, and players that the game could not be played dishonestly for any length of time without detection. It was this theory that enabled the dishonest players and the gamblers to reap their harvest. They proved that the game can be and has been successfully manipulated, provided the honest players on the team do not squeal. Plainly, the outsider cannot tell to a certainty. An honest player on any team, however, will know within a short time whether or not his fellows are trying to win. The hope of the future, therefore, lies in securing players of character to disregard the code of the underworld which has ruled the game. The ethics of criminals forbid informing upon the guilty. So long as the ballplayers who are personally honest persist in adopting this code, it will not be difficult for those players who are willing to sell themselves to find buyers. Jacob concludes, without Billy Maharg opening the floodgates, it's possible we'd still be wondering whether or not the 1919 World Series was fixed at all. Just like with Kim Kemenitti openly admitting that he and other players use PDs, or without Mike Fires talking about the Astros stealing signs, perhaps those scandals would have played out differently as well. And then, who knows, maybe everyone would be rooting for the Astros in this World Series. But still, maybe not, because the Astros have been there a bunch and the Phillies are fun. All right. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild and signing up to pledge some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay ad-free, and get yourself access to some perks. Thanks go out today to Jacob Conyers-Holyfield, Peter Vliette, Samuel Neckerson, Ralph Green, and Merhim. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group, monthly bonus episodes, discounts on merch, ad-free Fangraphs memberships, and, of course, playoff live streams. So Meg and I did a good one. We had fun this past Saturday for NLCS Game 4. We will be doing one more during the World Series. I had hoped it would be during the coming weekend, but I'm in a friend's wedding on Friday and Saturday nights, so it may have to be early the following week. Regardless, sometime soon, we'll be doing that second live stream. You can get in on that if you're at the Ned Garver tier or above. You can contact me and Meg 
via email at podcastofangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing and production assistance. Dylan stopped by the live stream as well, as did Ben Clemens. We will be back with another episode a little later this week. Talk to you then. I was